welcome to the Dogs Program on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We are the Defence of Government Schools and we're here to defend and to promote public education. And we have a very interesting program, we hope, for you today. Uh, we're starting with good news and we're ending with good news. And we're going to New South Wales for the good news, but also um, for the ideas that they have in New South Wales about not making the same mistakes again and again. We're spending a bit of time too in, in the United States and we're going to bring an article to you about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died in 2020 but did so much for the cause of church-state separation in that country. And given that Australia tends to follow or look to the United States, it is important that we uh, look at what she did there. And, of course, the dogs are very much pro-separation of religion from the state. That's why we're pro-public education. So let's get the show on the road, as Dar would say. And um, Andy's going to tell us about a historic boost to New South Wales teachers' pay. Over to you, Andrew. Thanks, Jean. So this is an article from the 9th of September. Historic boost to New South Wales teachers' pay will tackle teachers' shortage. Beginning and top-of-scale teachers in New South Wales will become the nation's best paid from October 9, helping tackle the statewide teacher shortage after the New South Wales Teachers' Federation Council this morning endorsed a new agreement with the New South Wales Government. The agreement varies the current award and runs until October 8 next year. It represents the most significant improvement to New South Wales teachers' wages in decades. It was struck after the government withdrew a previous proposal stipulating 2.5% wage increases over three subsequent years. The starting salary for a New South Wales teacher will increase from $75,791 to $85,000. And the salary for a top-of-the-scale teacher will increase from $113,042 to $122,100. All teachers will move to a new, higher-paying step. School counsellors will be paid according to a new salary scale, consisting of five annual steps, which recognises their dual qualification and acute staff shortages in their discipline. School counsellors are at band 2.3. Senior psychologists of education and leaders of psychology practices will have their salaries adjusted to the same level as head teachers and assistant principals, deputy principals and principals respectively. School counsellors at bands 1 to 2.2 will move to a new higher paying step on the salary scale. Casual teacher and casual counsellor school rates are also adjusted upwards from a two-step scale to a three-step scale linked to the steps one, three and five of the new full-time salary scale. Award-based allowances are also increased by 4%. The New South Wales Teachers Federation Acting President Henry Rajendra said, This historic advance has been won by thousands of teachers who campaigned tirelessly. They are passionate about the teaching profession and absolutely committed to giving all kids a decent shot at life. Teachers will benefit from this agreement, which will immediately begin tackling the teacher shortage. The ultimate beneficiaries are our children. Investing in teachers is investing in the future. We cannot forget this staffing crisis was a direct result of the former government's wage cap that artificially suppressed teachers' pay and their policy failures that pushed more and more work onto teachers, resulting in intolerable and unmanageable workloads. 
Under the proposed agreement, the current award will be varied and extended until 8 October 2024. The Federation and the Department will negotiate a new three-year award to commence at the expiration of the varied award. Congratulations to the New South Wales Teachers Federation. They've really worked very hard on that. And a lot of public school people all around Australia are working very hard on the whole funding issue. But um, there is still a problem, of course, in New South Wales and all around Australia with the division between the city and country students in Australia. And Dale's going to tell us about that. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article by Philip Roberts. On closing the divide between city and country students in Australia, we keep repeating past mistakes. The focus on standardised tests and cash incentives for teachers has not produced better outcomes for regional students, so why do we keep doing it? If the common definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome, then education policy makers must be insane. The recent New South Wales Auditor General's report on progress to reduce rural-urban inequities in education highlighted the persistent achievement gap, the significant staffing shortages and the difficulties in access to services to support student health and well-being. It could be a repeat of any progress report of the last 50 years. The equity challenges facing rural schools have been noted since the advent of universal primary education in the late 1800s. The frequency and level of alarm has increased since the seminal 1973 report by Professor Peter Carmel on schools in Australia. Since then, notable reports have reinforced these challenges, including a Commonwealth Schools Commission report in 1988, a Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission inquiry in 2000, and a Federal Independent Re Review in 2018. We've also had the two Gonski reviews and related policy reform, changes that, as the Productivity Commission noted in a report earlier this year, unfortunately have not reduced inequities in outcomes. Instead, inequity seems to have increased. Strangely, Australia seems to have observed these policy failures and doubled down on failed approaches and a narrowing of measures of success. Rather than upskilling teachers or engaging in more complex forms of assessment than modern technology affords, we instead see increasing reference to explicit instruction, pre-prepared lesson materials and evidence-based practices where what counts as evidence is increasingly narrow. Take NAPLAN, a central tenet of the reforms of the last two decades. As a policy tool, NAPLAN ignores that test questions always contain implied cultural baggage. If you've grown up on a farm or a small regional town, your everyday experience is different to a child from the city. Recent research conducted by the University of New South Wales Economics of Education Knowledge Hub shows that simple changes to the cultural contexts of examples in NAPLAN, such as changing a reading text to refer to the park's dish rather than a lighthouse, or using Aboriginal tools in place of other symbols on a treasure map, reduced the rural-urban gap in achievement by 33% and the Indigenous student gap by 50%. 
Other research examining HSC mathematics and English found that rural students achieved lower grades even when accounting for their social background, showing the gap was geographical, not just economic. Before the Gonski reforms, Australia had specific programs that helped teachers make their teaching material more relevant to rural students. These were removed for a more explicit one-size-fits-all model. We know that students learn by first connecting new concepts to their experience, but under the current model, the opportunity to do this is actively removed. When teachers' work is reduced to dishing out pre-prescribed materials and focused on narrow measures, it is no wonder that we have a staffing shortage. We are actively deprofessionalizing the very people we need to turn things around. Rather than enhance the professionalism of teachers, governments have reverted to the tried and tested incentives of cash to attract staff. This is no longer working, if it ever really did. Hundreds of rural schools are experiencing ongoing staff shortages and students are milling around playgrounds rather than classrooms. Increasing cash bonuses, rental subsidies and transfer rights to teachers cannot overcome the persistent undermining of their professional work. Indeed, the most common sentiment I hear from rural teachers is that they are too busy to teach, to make the curriculum meaningful for their students and to build the very relationships that motivated them to enter the classroom in the first place. The education system likes to ignore that rural Australia exists as a distinct space with distinct cultures, knowledges and histories. Instead, its focus on standardisation ensures rural students struggle to see themselves or their communities in education. I'm yet to meet a parent whose aspirations for their child's education is a NAPLAN or HSC grade, but that is the focus of the policymakers. Student achievement and teacher satisfaction are entwined. Teachers need the skills and the freedom to help rural students see themselves in the curriculum, as well as assessment measures that enable students to show what they know while also valuing their culture. This takes policies that value the professional work of teachers. We could start by recognising that teaching in a rural school is different to teaching in a major city. Students bring different experiences into the classroom and those classrooms are often multi-stage classrooms with high levels of differentiation and sometimes with students from multiple schools connected via technology. Teachers are also often the only person at the school trained in their particular subject, reducing the opportunities for support and collaboration. And if they're not from a rural community themselves, it can be difficult for teachers to connect the curriculum to their students' experience and future employment, such as the application of STEM subjects in ag tech. Teachers also describe the need to understand community dynamics and the Bush Telegraph to build the relationships that are are the foundation of successful teaching in these contexts. Given that rusted off voters, exacerbated by policies that undermine rural communities, are rejecting traditional political parties, it is time to value rural differences in education rather than trying to erase it. Specific teacher training that recognises the differences of working in rural contexts would be a good place to start. And that was by Dr Philip Roberts, who's an Associate Professor in Curriculum Inquiry and Rural Education at the University of Canberra. Back to you, Jean.
Well, thank you very much, Dale. Um, it is time that we started, started to stop repeating past mistakes, the main one being, of course, the funding of private schools. But we'll have a bit of break and come back to Ruth Badger Ginsburg. all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Hi! I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. The separation of church and state is enshrined in the Australian Constitution in Section 116 and in the American Constitution in the First Amendment. Now, that doesn't mean to say that the High Court justices or the Supreme Court justices always separate religion from the state. But one justice was true to the original intention of the founding fathers. That's Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And Sorrell's going to read us a very interesting article that appeared on the separation of church and state um, in America by Edward Tabash. Over to you, Sorrell. Thanks, Jean. The separation of church and state requires a government to be neutral in matters of religion. Such a government does not enact laws that are either overtly or historically traceable to concepts grounded only in religious beliefs without any independent empirical verification. For those of us who are devoted to attaining this legal ideal, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death was tragic. There has never been any rational basis for laws that automatically presume that men should have more rights than women. Until recently in human history, laws that deprived women of equal rights were prevalent in the overwhelming majority of societies. One of the traditional foundations for much of this was Genesis 3.16, in which Jehovah tells women that their husbands should rule over them. The first case that Ginsburg argued before the Supreme Court was Frontierio and Richardson. Here she persuaded the court to strike down by an eight to one vote, a military regulation that allowed male service members to claim their wives as dependents automatically but required female service members to offer proof that their husbands were financially dependent on them. 
In Edwards and Healy, Ginsburg argued that a Louisiana law was unconstitutional because it automatically allowed men to serve on juries, but required women to file a declaration stating their intent to be a juror before being allowed to serve. The justices remanded the case to the lower court because by the time it had reached the Supreme Court, Louisiana had apparently done away with this prejudicial requirement. President Jimmy Carter appointed Ginsburg to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia in 1980. She served there until President Bill Clinton appointed her to the Supreme Court in 1993. She achieved legendary status for her support of government neutrality in matters of religion, a principle under which we non-believers have no fewer rights than religious adherents. The following three cases are just a sampling of her valiant efforts to try to stop the unconstitutional special privileging of religion. When the Supreme Court ruled five to four in Burwell and Hobby Lobby, that for-profit private businesses owned by religious believers who object to contraception may refuse to comply with the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, requirement that employers provide employees with insurance coverage for contraception, Ginsburg dissented. She pointed out the dangers of allowing religious objectors to avoid complying with laws otherwise applicable to everyone, when the result is harm to third parties, such as employees denied contraceptive coverage. She also pointed out that if employers with religious objections to any number of potential medical devices, medicines, or medical treatments are permitted to refuse to provide health insurance coverage, that allows their employees to obtain these things, those employers will be imposing their religious views on their employees. She rightfully asked if there is a limit to the scope of what employers may do or withhold as a result of their religious beliefs. Ginsburg expressed the concern that religious owners of a health club serving the general public, a business with no religious purpose, could refuse to hire a young single woman working without her father's consent. She was also concerned that the majority opinion from which she was now dissenting could extend to allowing a Jehovah's Witness employer to refuse to provide employees with health insurance that would cover blood transfusions. She was similarly worried that a Christian science employer would now be permitted to deny employees insurance coverage that would cover vaccines. Ginsburg was right to warn about the possible extent of danger if religious employers are given such open-ended permission to essentially impose their religious views on their employees. In American Legion and American Humanist Association, the court ruled by a shocking 7-2 majority that a Latin cross placed on public property in Maryland in 1918 to commemorate local members of the armed forces who died in World War I was constitutionally permissible. This was based on an assertion amongst other claims that over time, otherwise religious symbols can become embedded features of the community's landscape and identity. The community may come to value them without necessarily embracing their religious roots. With the defection of just two justices who are usually reliable church-state separationists, Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan, Ginsburg wrote a powerful dissent in which Justice Sonia Sotomayor joined. She began by reminding everyone of the core concept of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. 
Government must always be neutral among religious faiths and between religion and non-religion. Ginsburg rejected the majority's concept that there is a presumption of constitutionality for long-standing monuments, symbols, and practices. To her and Sotomayor, if the display of a religious symbol on public property is unconstitutional, it's a violation of the First Amendment. It's not diminished just because it has been there for a hundred years. Something that is inherently unconstitutional does not become constitutional just because it has been in place for a lengthy period. Ginsburg dismissed the majority's claim that this particular cross has become a secular war memorial. Over the years, rather than still being a sectarian religious symbol. She wrote that the presence of this cross on public property elevates Christianity over other faiths and religion over non-religion. She further wrote that when a cross is placed on public property, the government may be presumed to endorse its religious content. She then explains that for nearly two millennia, the Latin cross has been the, the defining symbol of Christianity. She then writes that a Latin cross is an exclusively Christian symbol and it is not emblematic of any other faith. It's so fitting and poignant that her final written opinion was a dissent that she composed to try to protect the separation of church and state, including women's access to cost-free contraception through the healthcare insurance policies provided by their employers as required by the ACA. The Trump administration expanded the scope of permissible employer religious-based exemptions from the contraceptive mandate beyond what was addressed in Burwell and Hobby Lobby. The new Department of Health and Human Services, the HHS regulations, allowed any employer to be exempt from having to provide such insurance coverage under the ACA based on no more than the employer's ethical or religious objections to any form of contraception. Pennsylvania, later challenged by New Jersey, challenged these new regulations as violating the Administrative Procedures Act. In Little Sisters of the Poor Saints Peter and Paul Home and Pennsylvania, the court ruled that the involved federal agencies had the authority to expand employers' exemptions under the ACA and didn't violate the APA in doing so. The majority opinion said, we hold that the departments had the authority to provide exemptions from the regulatory contraception requirements for employers with religious and conscientious objections. None of the unexpectedly high number of justices in this majority of this seven to two opinion even addressed the problems inherent in allowing employers the right to impose their religious views on their employees. Ginsburg addressed this issue in her dissent in which Sotomayor joined. Ginsburg opened by reminding the majority that in addressing religious freedoms claims, the court does not allow the religious beliefs of some to overwhelm the rights and the interests of others who do not share those beliefs. She then pointedly addressed the core of the problem with the majority opinion. Today, for the first time, the court casts totally aside countervailing rights and interests in its zeal to secure religious rights to the nth degree. 
She further wrote that the government may not jettison an arrangement that promotes women workers' well-being and instead defer entirely to employers' religious beliefs, particularly if that accommodation harms women who do not share those beliefs. She was one of only two justices who never forgot that government neutrality in matters of religion is violated whenever religious objectors are permitted to avoid complying with an otherwise generally applicable law, especially when that non-compliance harms innocent third parties. Excellent article about some of uh, Ginsburg's achievements there by Edward Tabash. Back over to Eugene. Well, thank you so very much. Uh, and, of course, the dogs are great church-state separationists, and that is why we oppose uh, state aid to religious schools. But uh, we'll have a bit of a break and come back to um, another very interesting article. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 03 9419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Join me, Aya Kwai, with Ubuntu Voices. Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, and now we're going back up to New South Wales where the government is determined not to repeat the mistakes of merging a whole lot of schools together, the same as they have done in a lot of regional areas. And I think that the Victorian government could perhaps take a leaf out of their book. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article here by Caitlin Cassidy, Determined Not to Repeat Mistakes. New South Wales government swears off regional school mergers. So Labor has already announced the demerger of two super schools, accusing the previous coalition government of making a mess. 
The New South Wales government has suggested it will not merge any further public schools in regional areas after concerns the so-called super schools are failing to achieve improved outcomes. Super schools have become more common in the past decade as state governments try to improve resource efficiency and boost academic performance at underperforming public schools. Murrumbidgee Regional High School in Griffith, Mwilumbar Learning Community in Tweed and Armidale Secondary College in New England all opened in the past four years. The Minns government has announced plans to reverse the merger of the Mwilumbar and Murrumbidgee schools since coming into power in March. No such plan has been announced for Armidale. The Education Minister Prue Carr told Guardian Australia the previous government had made a mess in a number of regional communities by announcing school mergers without consulting anybody involved. This habit of forcing major upheaval in school communities without engaging beforehand is something we saw time and time again, she said. We are determined not to repeat the mistakes. University of New South Wales education professor Scott Ecott worked on the independent evaluation into Murrumbidgee, which found it had damaged the reputation of public schooling in Griffith and led to poor staff well-being. He said school mergers were motivated by resourcing, performance and a desire to remove the element of competition between public schools that can lead to there being a desired and a less desired school. In practice, it can lead to a divided school community. Staff and students have to find a place, he said. You're taking away the history of the school, things that matter to the community, yet you're bringing the cultural baggage and organisational inertia. It's a major issue. The only way they have positive outcomes is with an explicit and honest articulation of why it's on the table, even if that's confronting. Ecott said the merger failed in large part because the community was frustrated and was not given the best opportunity to buy into the project. Many of the parents only found out about the merger via social media. That frustration can lead to an exacerbation of the problem. The merger was intended to solve. Students from higher socioeconomic backgrounds and high-performing teachers leave the public system, reducing the performance of the school as a whole. Parents who have the most mobility are the ones who leave, he said. Ecott said the pressure to merge schools would increase in response to the changing demographics in regional areas, meaning there was a need for clear data and strong processes to manage the transition. It shouldn't be left to chance, he said. They're really messy situations. If you're spending millions, there should be an independent process assessing it. We want to reduce these inequity gaps. We don't want regional students to be experimented on. Egot said he offered to review Armidale Secondary College, which opened in 2021, but the Education Department declined. The school is facing allegations of poor student welfare and bullying, and its attendance and performance have declined. Ecott says the failure to review the school was a missed opportunity. The parent of a student who attends the secondary college, who is an academic at the University of New England, told Guardian Australia schools in Armidale's operated like a marketplace, where parents with the means to afford one of the regional centre's six private 
or religious high schools can shop around. Families without those means have just one option. Nationwide teacher shortages have made the problem worse. It's a concern for kids going into year 11 and 12, the parent who asked not to be identified said. If the teacher leaves and nobody else comes, how do you study the HSC? Bigger school populations aren't necessarily best. Not all schools will suit all types of children. The experience of Armadale is mergers shouldn't go ahead. Interesting stuff. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you so much, Dale. Now, Sorrel's got another very interesting article about school libraries and how important they are. Over to you, Sorrel. Thanks, Jean. So this article is by Nova Wheatman and is entitled School Libraries are an ally to students needing an escape. We can't let them vanish. As a children's author, I spend much of my time in schools talking to young people about writing and explaining my love of reading and why that started me on my journey with words. Mostly, I do these talks in school libraries, which means I'm mostly booked to speak at schools that still have libraries. I've visited beautiful school libraries, magical places with trained librarians who spend their time planning quizzes, book hunts, competitions and author visits. These libraries are well used. They are places of worship because the students value them. Visiting at lunchtime and they are heaving. One of my books, Sick Bay, has a character who spends much of her time in the school sick bay to avoid other people and to avoid bullying. At school visits, I am sometimes asked why this character isn't frequenting the library if the schoolyard is such a hard place for her to be. I explain that at the public primary school, my character goes to the library is such a small scrap of a place that it isn't open at lunch or recess. It's just somewhere to return books, maybe borrow another, but not browse or lounge or hide. That library disappeared long ago to make room for more classrooms and the librarian no longer has a job. Students are often surprised to hear of schools without libraries, without librarians, but there are many in Australia and there are commonly in areas where libraries are needed most. In areas where students do not have access to books at home, more and more schools in Australia are doing away with their libraries and librarians. Schools need the library classrooms for some other purpose and books cost too much because libraries are no longer funded adequately. The library has long been an ally to students needing an escape, a place surrounded not just by books, but by adults who understand, who read, who talk in measured whispers. These librarians know their collections, can pass the right book into the right hands and discuss stories with students for hours. But more than that, these librarians demonstrate to students the importance of reading. It's not just because of funding shortfalls that libraries are being closed, although I would guess many public schools do not have an adequately dedicated library funding. It is also because we no longer properly value the importance of reading. In a push to schedule students to do better to achieve more, we've forgotten that libraries are just a place to stop and just be. Perhaps it is hard to quantify just how important a library and a dedicated librarian can be to a school community. The value of reading isn't easy to measure, even if we intrinsically understand its importance. Reading helps us to learn vocabulary and grammar and understand the nature of a story. It helps us to learn empathy as we delve into the worlds of others and travel to new lands. 
Each year, as the NAPLAN results are announced, we seem shocked there are growing numbers of students behind in reading and mathematics. For most teachers, however, these results are not a surprise. They understand their classrooms. They see students falling behind. They know more attention and funding is needed for rural, regional and Indigenous students who have been falling behind for many years. I didn't have much of a school library growing up because I was at a small public primary school on the outskirts of the suburbs. And we didn't have a public library either because our town was too small. Instead, we had a mobile library that rattled in once a week and parked at the front of the tennis courts. Visiting the mobile library was the highlight of my week and I would fill my bike basket with as many books as I could. But by this age, I'd already had a mum who read to me for years, taught me to read alongside my teachers and encouraged my love of story. We cannot expect that students who have no access to books and libraries will just pick up a book, the right book, and start reading. Thank you. Very important to have a library, isn't it? And they go on and on and on about the basics, particularly reading and, and grammar and what have you. How are children going to learn if they don't read? But uh, we'll have a bit of a break and uh, we're off to America. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, you're still listening to Dogs Program and now we're going off to the America and the UK with Jeff. Thanks, Jean. And today we're going to go to our wonderful blog from Diana Ravitch from the United States who supports all things public education. She's got an article by Peter Green, and she write, but she writes an introduction to it. Um, this is dated September 11th, 2023, an ominous anniversary, of course. Um, Peter Green, her parents are happy with their public schools, but the public falls for right-wing lies. She, she writes, Peter Green wrote in Forbes about the results of the latest Gallup polls about schools. Bottom line, the extremist plot to dismantle public, public education has bamboozled the public, but not parents. The absurd conspiracy to portray teachers as groomers and paedophiles is undermining public trust in one of our most democratic institutions, the one that teaches us to live with, other, with others who are not just like us. As the extremist Chris Rufo said in his infamous speech at Hildale College, the road to universal school choice requires, requires sowing distrust of the public schools. Peter Green writes, Parental satisfaction with their local schools is at an all-time high, while Americans' satisfaction with kindergarten to 12 quality is at a record-tying low according to a newly released poll result from Gallup. 
Starting in 1999, the pollsters have asked Americans every August about their views of the K-12 quality. There has always been a gap in the results. Parents think their own schools are better than the national system as a whole, and non-parents think the national system is even worse. But this year, the gap is especially huge. Of parents of kindergarten to 12 students, 76% consider themselves completely or somewhat satisfied with their oldest child's education quality. But when it comes to the US system as a whole, those parents are only 41% completely or somewhat satisfied, 14% for completely. Americans as a whole are only 36% satisfied with kindergarten to 12 education, 8% for completely satisfied. Only 9% of K-12 parents are completely dissatisfied with their, school, their children's education. For the system as a whole, both the parents and the full group report 25% completely dissatisfied. Educators have long suggested that this disparity is the result of negative coverage, that theory makes sense. You know your own child's school first-hand, but beyond that, you only know what you're told second-hand. Nor have opponents of public education been shy about explaining their intent. In an April 22 speech at Hillsdale College entitled Laying Siege to the Institutions, school choice advocate Chris Rufo laid out the strategy succinctly. To get universal school choice, you really need to operate from a place of universal school distrust. This caps 40 years of pressing home the message that US public schools are failing. There was a time when supporting public schools was as politically innocuous as babies and apple pie. Now, criticism of public education is the political norm, with accusations that teachers are paedophiles and groomers and porn peddlers are not unusual. And groups like Mums for Liberty push the narrative that the majority of parents are themselves up in arms about the many failings of their districts. As the poll shows, that's not true. If your child is in school, you see firsthand the efforts of the district and the results for your child. But if you have no children at all, or your children's school days were long ago, all you know about school is what you hear secondhand. And that secondhand space is dominated by voices declaring that US education is failing. The poll finds, uh, findings reflect that long, repetitive, negative messaging and little else. After all, what would be a better way to gauge the quality of a particular restaurant? Talk to people who just ate there or the people who do PR for a rival eatery. Yeah, isn't that the case? So it's the old adage, um, if you uh, tell a lie three times, after a while people will believe it. Um, it becomes true. So, um, yeah, so that's the finding is that the, um, the rhetoric doesn't match the actual findings of parents. So uh, and now we're also going to go, as we normally do, over to England, where there's a very interesting story uh, in Humanists UK, which is an online blog uh, from Northern Ireland. And it's 12th of September 2023. Humanists UK to Labour. Faith schools need reform, not uncritical re- support. And this is... Yeah, on the 12th of September, 23. And the article goes, Humanists UK has called for Labour leader Keir Starmer, MP, to look more closely at the inequalities created by faith schools after he was reported by Jewish News to have said a future government led by Labour would be even more supportive of faith schools than recent Conservative governments. In response... 
Humanist UK is writing to the Labor leader and the Shadow Secretary of State for Education, Bridget Phillipson, MP, to remind them of the overwhelming evidence of the segregation caused by faith schools and how their provision has contributed to increased religious and racial segregation in some communities and compounded difficulties in accessing local schools, particularly for non-religious and poorer families. The letter quotes former Education Minister David Laws, who said in response to a report from his Independent Education Policy Institute about the inequalities in the faith school system. He said, while there are some faith schools which do admit a large number of disadvantaged pupils, our research shows that almost one in ten secondary faith schools are even more selective than the average grammar school, and in general, fewer poor children get admitted to faith schools. Meanwhile, research from Humanist UK on the inequalities perpetuated by faith schools has found that comprehensive secondary schools with no religious character admit 5% more pupils eligible for free school meals than live in their local areas. Yet comprehensive Church of England secondaries admit 15% fewer, Roman Catholic secondaries 28% fewer, Jewish secondaries 63% fewer, and Muslim secondaries, 29% fewer. A clear correlation exists between the degree of religious selection and how socioeconomically exclusive schools are. Comprehensive schools with no religious character typically admit 5% more pupils eligible for free school meals than would be expected given their areas. Religious comprehensives that do not select by religion typically admit 1% fewer, but those who admission, whose admissions criteria allow religious selection for all places typically admit 30% fewer. Furthermore, Humanists UK has also shown that religious schools are racially segregated. The majority of Sikh, Muslim and Hindu state-funded schools have no white British pupils at all, while the rest have only one or two at most. At the same time, most Jewish state schools have no Asian pupils at all. By comparison, the average Muslim, Hindu and Sikh school is situated in an area where a third of the population is white British, whereas Jewish schools are in areas where 12% is Asian. The government's own research has shown that pupils in ethnically mixed schools are more trusting and have a more positive view of children from different backgrounds than do pupils in segregated schools. Humanist UK Education Campaign's manager Robert Can said, with, two, with more than two-thirds of young people now profess, professing no religion, but new faith schools continuing to open, the difficulties facing parents will only continue to grow. Refusing to look at this would risk storing up serious problems for the future. We invite the Labor leader to look at the data and take a holistic view of education and on that basis offer up realistic solutions to reducing social and racial inequalities and advancing children's rights in education. Reform is needed. Humanists UK has recently drawn attention to the growing crisis in large areas such as Liverpool where preferential treatment both of faith schools and applications for new faith schools has led to a shortfall in school places suitable for pupils of all backgrounds, even as the numbers of parents professing a religion in Merseyside dwindles. 
Following the Bradford and Oldham race riots, community cohesion expert Ted Cantle, CBE, seminal Cantle report for the government, identified faith schools' admission policies as a prime factor sustaining deep racial and religious divisions in communities across England. A follow-up report of 2017 found faith schools were more ethnically segregated and more likely to cater to more advantaged students. However, Cantle's recommendations were not heeded and religious segregation has instead increased. Recently, recently, Ofsted, which is the Office of Standards and Education, Ofsted, has attempted to uphold minimum standards for RSE in faith schools and there have been recent scandals involving homophobic and misogynistic literature and inappropriate evangelism being endorsed in state faith schools. These standards reflect children's basic rights to education about relationships, which should not be permitted to be taught in a biased manner according to their parents' beliefs. Support for parents. Humanists UK is the only organisation in the UK that employs a full-time campaigner researching issues with religion in schools or supporting parents to navigate the system. It recently published a series of guides on religion in schools to support parents who face common issues with the current law. Uh, and so I think that's a really quite a good article. Um, and and uh, Humanists UK sound like somebody, uh, an organisation with whom the dogs would have much in common. Anyway, with those uh, thoughts, I'll uh, throw it back to you, Jean. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jeff. And now we go to the best part of the week, uh, the Great State School. Over to you, Andy. Every week on the Dogs Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. <laughs> And this week's Great State School of the Week is Upper Plenty Primary School. And here's a statement um, from their website from their principal. Upper Plenty Primary School is located at the foothills of Mount Disappointment, approximately 60 kilometres north of Melbourne. The old schoolhouse stands as an historic reminder of the era in which it was built. The school has experienced exceptional growth since 2004, the school growing from 35 students to a current population of almost 200. In 2009, a new school building was constructed as part of the Rural Replacement Program. In 2011, the BER building was added to our facilities, allowing the school to boast exceptional facilities in a unique semi-rural environment. While all classrooms have computer workstations, our ICT program has been focused on building up a laptop and iPad bank, which all grades can access. Nine classes operate currently. In addition to the nine classroom teachers, we have a part-time science teacher, phys ed teacher and art teacher. There are two part-time office administrators and three part-time integration aides who support the intervention program. Upper Plenty Primary School is proud of the educationally rich Prep to Six program delivering in each of the key learning areas. We offer programs that promote active learning and we differentiate the curriculum to meet the needs of all individuals. Our strategic plan focuses on literacy and numeracy. It is our vision to provide a learning environment for all students that is challenging, engaging, and optimizes students' ability to work at their full potential. 
At Upper Plenty Primary School, we aim to provide a safe and caring environment for all our students, staff, parents and community volunteers. We believe that children's educational, emotional, social and physical development will thrive in a positive and caring environment. We are committed to establishing an atmosphere that builds self-esteem and confidence, a place where children can learn without fear of failure. Our agreed school values include respect, responsibility and resilience. Our school's strength and success is in the area of community relationships. Upper Plenty Primary School has maintained a commitment to value and preserve the close and supportive school community that the small school setting can provide, even though the growth of the school has been rapid. The commitment to practices that support the fostering of strong and productive home school relationships underpins all aspects of our work at this school. In a nutshell, we embrace the belief behind the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. And that's from Sue Egan, the current principal. And here's some facts and figures from ACARA. The school has 197 pupils. The ICSIA value of the school is 1,003, just above the average of 1,000. The students are representative of the community. This is a happy semi-rural community. 12% have parents from the upper 25% in income, 25% in the second highest, and 33% from the third quartile, and 30% from the poorest 25% of the community. 11% of the pupils speak a language other than English, and 7% are of Indigenous parentage. This is a school full of outdoor loving students with dedicated principal and teachers. It cost the taxpayer $14,284, just above the Gonski Resource Standard, to educate a student at this school. The school receives only $57,500 from the federal government and $2.2 million from the state government, along with $78,548 from fees and $22,382 from private fundraising. Capital grants in the past three years have been $264,000. All this money is money well spent. The NAPLAN results of these students are above average in every area. Congratulations to the clever children and dedicated staff at this school in Upper Plenty. Well, there you have it. Perhaps one of the loveliest schools in Victoria up there amongst the gum trees in Clarks Road, Upper Plenty. But uh, our time has run out for the week. We could go on forever, of course. We've got to tell you next week about the new OECD uh, report. But for the moment, we must say goodbye. And if you want to find out more about dogs, then you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. But to Dale, our producer, and Andy and Sorrel and Jeff, for the moment, it's bye for now.
they shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe, I didn't die, says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.